Well, welcome everybody to volume 19 of Dropping Keys podcast. Yes, volume 19 of conversations with real people living real lives to glean their insights and keys to life, leadership, love, and whatever else we get into. I'm Joel Morgan, your host, and I'm the head of Key Exploration. Well, why do I call it Dropping Keys? Well, in a few moments, you'll hear me read a poem by Hafez, who was a 15th century mystic and poet, and that poem is the inspiration for this podcast. Why me? Well, I like to instigate and facilitate important conversations with individuals and organizations to clarify where they are and to help them move forward. I'm a certified coach and facilitator. I'm an inspirational speaker. I'm a writer, and I'm a seeker of keys to help myself and others live lives of meaning and purpose. And why do I say real people in real life? Well, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, as if you're listening to one, you probably have as well. And I've just gotten tired of listening to the superstars of our time. I mean, they're fine people, um, and many of them do amazing, wonderful work and have been through a lot. But I've heard enough of them. I wanted to hear from people who I call in the arena, giving their heart and their soul to work, to family, community, those who maybe don't get the big headlines or have their praises sung from on high yet. I didn't hear those voices out there and I wanted to bring them to you. And selfishly, I wanted an excuse to ask some great questions and plumb the depth of what gives others life and releases them from the cages in which they find themselves. And so if you enjoy what you hear, I would ask you to support this podcast by going to joelmorgan.com backslash pay so that we can stay commercial free except this one. Today, my dropping keys co-conspirator is Heather. And Heather, I didn't ask you how to pronounce your last name. So I'm going to ask you right now, how do you pronounce your last name? Harmon. Harmon. My dropping keys co-conspirator is Heather Harmon. Heather has over 15 years of experience in education. She's worked in early childhood programs, elementary schools, the college level teaching parents and caregivers parent education. She's an experienced life coach trained through the Martha Beck Institute and is a certified Gottman Institute instructor. And if you don't know what the Gottman Institute is, people, you better Google it because it's awesome. Heather is trained as a mediator with King County Dispute Resolution Center and as a co-parent coach with her mentor, Karen Bennell. She loves talking to families and helping them manage the hard work of parenting and self-care. She lives in Seattle with her spouse and her teenage son. They have two adult stepchildren and one grandson from her current marriage. Her passion for help is for helping families navigate the challenging terrain of co-parenting and restructuring comes from lived experience. Heather co-parents with her ex-wife and works to find a healthy dynamic between the two step families that keeps the needs and best interests of her son central. I'm really excited to have Heather with me today as my co-conspirator. And now I'm going to read Dropping Keys. Once I'm finished, Heather, I'm going to invite you to share any first thoughts or reflections or questions that are brought to mind as I'm reading it. Here we go. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful Rowdy prisoners. Mm. Beautiful. 
I love this poem so much. And I, as uh, Dana mentioned on your last podcast, I'm so grateful to be able to see this image too. Gorgeous artwork. Um, well, you asked me to not think about it too much. And <laughs> I'm noticing that I, um, I, you know, I had heard it on your podcast before and I, looking at it again now, and I'm just so struck by this idea of cages. And um, I've been thinking about the cages as being symbolic for what we build around ourselves and how these cages can uh, really represent what I call uh, limited beliefs in our in our lives, right? So we think that we we can't do something because we can't afford to do it, because we um, lack skill or ability or creativity or um, I don't know, just the the funds maybe, right, to move forward with it. And uh, and I love that this this big. I imagine this big sage, right, who has to duck his whole body in to drop keys, drop these little, what I call hints that the universe sends to us, right? These places where we might see a symbol and it's like, why do I keep seeing this? For me, it was, um, I had this period of time where I would, <laughs> this is so silly, but I would see these, F, the Toyota FJ Cruiser which by the way, they only made from uh, 2007 to 2012 or 14, somewhere around in there. Very, like the most impractical car you can buy, right? Because it's a two-door SUV, but they look like little, they look like toys. They look like um, you've got a, a Hot Wheels that you've just like, blown up into human size life. And I would see them all the time. And I would particularly see blue and orange. And so it's, it's, uh, I texted my most woo-woo spiritual friend and I was like, all right, what's this? What is going on with this? Because <laughs> it was everywhere. And, um, and then I would report back to my spouse and my son. I'd be like, okay, I saw four FJs today, you know, what's going on? And um, so anyway, my friend said, well, orange is creativity and blue is voice as far as the chakras. And so I just kept taking that. And even now I just imagine these cars represent play to me, which before uh, the, we started recording, Joel and I talked about play is not an easy thing for me to get to. And so now every time I see an FJ, I'm like, oh, got to get recentered here. I got to get back to my playful self. Remember to play Heather. And then depending on what color it is, I make up my own ideas about what that might represent. But anyway, I think of those as like, you know, that's sort of a, a fluffy one, but these hints that the universe drops for us. So like return to this again, get present. What am I missing? What am I staying stuck in my cage? when these keys are being dropped for me on a regular basis. I love that poem. Yeah. And I, 
I mean, it's the centerpiece of a podcast that I do every week. So <laughs> I fell in love with it the minute I was introduced to it. Um, I think what the thing that you said that was that just got me was you were sharing this example and you said, oh, this is a it's a fluffy example. Mm. <laughs> right. We we mm. we so often we poo-poo these things that have given us some interest, some super interesting insight into our situation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, that's that's sort of an aside. I, I find that I just I found that that really, really yeah. interesting that we um, you know, that's a fluffy example. Well, well maybe. Yeah. And I think some of that comes from my own internal judgment, right? Like a, I live in Seattle. I'm probably not going to buy a big gas guzzler, right? Especially now, right? We've got, yeah. I don't know, our gas prices are like over $5 a gallon right now. Right. And I actually drive an electric car, but I'm like, you know, how could I rationalize this two door SUV that has like very, I mean, just super quirky. Like there's YouTube videos about how quirky this car is. So it sort of is my own internal judgment about, you know, well, this is not a practical, practical thing, but can I let it live as something that I don't need to own or have or consume, but something that I can just say like, oh, there it is again. There's that reminder. Yep. I haven't been connected to play in my life. I haven't been connected to creativity. I haven't been connected to using my voice to asking for what I need. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as soon as you started talking about the FJ, um, I drive a very impractical, but, but old and paid for vehicle, a Jeep Wrangler. And my boys call the FJ, the fake Jeep. (laughs) <laughs> they have for years. It's so funny. Anyway, so that, that connected with me, connected with me right away. Um, so as you think about, as you think about cages and you think about keys, um, what are some of the, what are some of the cages that you found yourself in, you know, maybe early on, we talked uh, before we got onto recording a little bit about your experience with the Appalachian service project as, you know, like an 18 to 20 year old. And, um, and so what, what kind of cages did you find yourself in and what kind of keys were dropped maybe even back then, or even before then that, that began to to open you up to some new experiences or new things? Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, uh, my experience with ASP came up in our earlier conversation and, um, have not thought this through a whole lot. So here I go. I'm going to just verbally process this. <laughs> so I grew up in uh, Kansas City area and, uh, you know, 12 years of Catholic school service was very central to my uh, experience there, which I love. But I also had this this other family you know, very deep, like chosen family, best friend, and her whole family belonged to the Methodist church. And they really embraced me, especially during my parents' divorce. And they took me along on one of their service trips to the Appalachian region. And I had uh, just never experienced anything like that before. The extreme poverty, 
Um, and the deep spiritual connection that these folks had to their land, to their family, to their beliefs. And, um, oh man, it was just life-changing. And I made absolutely the, the strongest connections to folks that I worked with there and served, um, that really were their life, lifelong experiences. And, I think that the the key that got dropped was sort of uh, taking me out of the box of what I thought service meant. What I thought service meant was I give, I give, I give. But what I experienced at in Appalachia was I give, I receive twice what I just gave. And that receiving, you know, was more of a, a personal growth, a spiritual depth that um, was frankly really hard to let go of. I, I left there and I was, I was lost for a long time after it was sort of like a, uh, a, a deep depression after that, that I just knew I had to get back. And I, and so I went back and worked for a second summer uh, with some folks there and then ended up moving to Atlanta to be closer to some of those people because they were also in uh, divinity school there in Atlanta. And um, that helped me just sort of grow personally and see myself. I came out when I was living in Atlanta as a, as a queer person. Um, and I just made some incredible connections with folks there that eventually carried me to Seattle where I knew I needed to uh, spread my wings even further. Mm. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that it, that it opened you up and then being away from it caused this, this rebound effect, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. this rebound effect. So what did you, as you, as you process through that and then the moving to Atlanta and, and of course, then, then coming out, like what kind of cages did, had you found yourself in even coming out of that service experience and then, and then moving through this very big, well, I'm assuming anyway, very big, you know, um, maybe not decision, but at least decision to let people know this is who I am. Mm-hmm. What kind of keys did you find there or cages did you find that you were in that you, had, you just had to get out of? Oh gosh. I mean, they're just ongoing. <laughs> like, like even just thinking about exactly what it meant to be um, identify as lesbian or identify as bisexual or identify as queer. Like it was just ongoing over many years and um, the parameters of um, would I be accepted uh, would certain people that were important to me in my life see me? Would they believe me? Would the queer community accept and embrace me? Right. So all of these cages that we just kind of put ourselves in, what does it mean to be queer? And, you know, I'm 50 now and I was uh, in my twenties at the time. So, you know, it was also a lot different then you still had to stay fairly closeted in certain situations. And so moving, even moving to Seattle, it was like, oh, you know, now, now I'm in the liberal bubble 
And so this is now what it means to be queer, right? And what I found was you can't make any assumptions. You don't, you don't make assumptions about who people are. And that, can, that growth continues today, even um, you know, as we really learn to embrace um, and acknowledge folks' identity, uh, their gender identity, um, you know, pronouns. Um, today is actually Trans Visibility Day, too. I just want to call that out as oh, well. Wow. Yeah. This is, and we're recording on Thursday, March 31st. This there won't we come go. out for a little yeah. while, but let's, yeah. let's name that so people, yeah. there you people go. know what we're talking about. Well, so for, for, the, for folks who may not have this queer in their minds, um, mm-hmm. you, you talked about, you said, well, what does it mean to say I'm lesbian, to say I'm bisexual, to say I'm queer? How do you, how do you define that now? For yourself, if you're willing to share that, yeah. For myself, I um, I identify as queer. Just um, I feel like there's loaded terms within the queer community about what it means to be lesbian, what it means to be bisexual, um, and some of that is old stuff that just is still getting filtered through. But um, but that's. My uh, queer just for me represents the, the, um, that's the best word to describe how I feel as a person who is, uh, had been married to a woman for 16 years, is divorced, is remarried to somebody that identifies as non binary. Um, so that, yeah, and has dated, um, had cis men off and on as well throughout my adult life. So that's where, that's where I feel that label most um, identifies me. Yeah. Well, so as you think about keys and cages, and as we move into this particular time of, of really trying, I mean, cages have gotten blown up. I mean, forcibly blown up many people who would not have confronted this before, but let's just talk pronouns, for example, I'm not, mm-hmm. we're not, we're not even talking about race or anything like that now. I mean, there's all of that, but, mm-hmm. but pronouns, for example, a lot of those, those just got blown up. It's in people's faces who probably who may not have wanted to ever encounter it or deal mm-hmm. with it. So, um, how, how do you how how do you get a sense of what's happening in terms of of cages being you know unlocked and keys being dropped for for people who are who are labeling themselves naming themselves claiming whatever it is they're trying to claim and and for those who are also trying to like operate in this world that feels very foreign sometimes in, mm-hmm. in terms of pronouns or just how people you know operate mm-hmm. um what do you see is in terms of what's happening there now? I mean, I guess I see it mostly with it starts with the kids because the kids are just so much closer to the earth than we are because they haven't. And I say that because I feel like they they haven't learned all the filters, right? They haven't learned how to um censor themselves as much. And so they walk through the world a little more freely and 
I feel like um, even as early as preschool, I've really seen this more and more where kids feel comfortable saying, you know, I, you know, these, these are my pronouns. This is, this was my given name, but this is the name that I choose to go by. And I feel like the keys that are being dropped is we don't have to live in such the binary, right? We don't have to say like, um, but I'm your mother and I named you Joel. So you must stay with that name. Why wouldn't you honor that? If that's not really who you feel yourself to be, right? And I think, um, I think the more we allow the discussion to happen, the more we allow the education to happen and ask the critical thinking questions and open-ended questions, then we can get to just like, oh, this is actually really safe. This is a, this is a good place to be so that people can really fully come out of their cage. Mm. Yeah, my my wife and I have this conversation regularly. She's a middle school teacher, and in her middle mm. school, every um, and I'll use the word girl um, is self declared something. If they aren't bi- non binary or they aren't um, um, homo- homosexual, you know, in 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 that uh, lesbian, they're they're bisexual, mm-hmm. and so the majority of them are self declared bisexuals Mm -hmm. and the pronouns change every day. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is, it is my wife gets, she gets frustrated about that because then of course, sometimes the kids get upset with her because she's not calling them by the right pronouns. And she's like, but yesterday you told me it was this, (laughs) you know, can you, can, can it, can I have some grace today? You know, like that sort of thing. And, and so um, I, I, we've just found it fascinating because the thing that we've noticed is, is that, um, the, those that most of those 99% of those who are male, um, aren't saying a word, mm-hmm. aren't mm-hmm. declaring, unless they're declaring I'm non-binary or I'm, um, or I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And that is like a teeny tiny little percentage, mm-hmm. you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of those people. So it's just interesting to see the, you know, um, this, this sort of dichotomy within whatever feels like freedom or pressure, depending on how you look at it to, to make these declarations. And, and I just, I think, I think it's going to be 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be really interesting to be able to talk to those kids and talk about what, what was that like? Mm -hmm. What, Mm -hmm. what, you know, and where did you land? Right. 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 I mean, not that you have to land somewhere forever, forever, but just, you know, but like, where, where are you now? You know, like, yeah, well, how did yeah. that, how did that, how did that go now? So I fascinated by, um, by that. So then how did you, what happened? What, what was unlocked for you then in Atlanta? You, you, you're, you're coming out, you're, you're really discovering who you really are and owning mm-hmm. that. And, and then, so how did you, how did the, the cage or the key open up so that you, to choose, to begin choosing sort of a career path or at least where you're going <laughs> to begin to focus um, what you're doing with your life? Yeah. Well, in, when I was in Atlanta, I met a very dear friend who was from Winthrop, Washington. And she said, um, she knew that I was looking at going back to finish my undergraduate degree. And she was like, Heather, I just, I feel like you would love the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. 
And so I sent off, you know, there was no like online catalogs or anything then. So I sent off for the catalog and I got it in the mail and I was like, what is this magical place? And it was a small state college, very liberal, um, instead of grades, they use narrative reports. So you get like a full description of like what you've done wrong and what you've done well, right? And they say that in every classroom, the best classroom that you walk into, you would not really know who the instructor was versus the students because the students are so actively engaged. And so I I came out and visited and I was just blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, this felt so empowering to me as somebody that did not do well in school. I did not do well in sitting in desks, facing forward and doing rote memorization. It just like, I feel like I sat on my hands to try to keep myself distracted for years. You know, it was, uh, and you know, 12 years of Catholic school is in Kansas is what, what you would expect. Right. Right. I mean, some great, uh, like some great experiences. And also it was just probably not the best fit for me as a learner. So what I learned about myself there was like, Oh, actually I'm quite smart (laughs) and I, I am a good learner. I just learned differently. Mm. And that, and I, and I was still focused on this um, orientation of service. And uh, I graduated from Evergreen. I took a little bit of time off. I really just learned a ton about myself. And I went to graduate school at also a more alternative school called Antioch, which I believe there's one in Ohio. And then we have, um, we have one out here. And I got my master's in education because I had been working in domestic violence shelters and I kept finding myself drawn to the kids. And I felt like this was the place that I could make the most difference. And so I got my master's in education and, uh, and as soon as I got that, it the Seattle public schools had a huge budget shortfall and they were laying off all their teachers and rehiring the rehiring them. So they essentially weren't hiring new teachers. So I was working as a substitute teacher in the schools that had, you know, the greatest disparities in Seattle And um, I remember one school I walked in one day and I was like, okay, I'm here for my assignment. And, you know, because it's just like a robo call that you get. And the secretary didn't even get up from her desk. She looked so tired and she was like, all right, great. Uh, Here's your key. Come grab it. Your classroom is down the hall on the left. And oh, by the way, the teacher abandoned the classroom. So you have no lesson plans. You've got 10 minutes. Good luck. And I was like, oh boy, let's see where this goes, right? And it was first graders. And, um, and it, that was so exciting to me. And also I got burnout pretty quickly. And um, I worked for some private schools and I just was like not finding my groove. And I also at this point had married my wife. We really, I really especially wanted to have a baby 
Um, and so we were like, let's, let's just do this. So I had a child. I was super excited to be a parent. We decided that I would stay home for a couple of years with them, let him, you know, attach and nurture and grow. And why would we, why would I go get a teaching job to only pay for, you know, daycare essentially. And so, oh, I just like, that was obviously as parenting is life-changing. And uh, we joked that I got my master's in education to raise this little kiddo because he turned out to just be super bright academically. And, um, and uh, you know, there, I don't know how, how deep to get into this, but it also just unlocked a whole world for me about, uh, the way that I was parented, the way that I wanted to parent what I now knew about education and how the brain learns. Right. And, um, I just wanted to walk that walk with him a little bit more and had it all planned out though, like knew the exact preschool we were going to send him to when he turned two and <laughs> we sent him there and it was just a mess. They were like, we don't know why this kid only wants to write his alphabet. We want him to pour water and do stamping. And, um, and so, and he was getting emotionally dysregulated every single day and some pretty serious uh, separation anxiety, I would say. And so it took a long time to find a preschool that was play-based, that really allowed him to learn in the way that he wanted to learn. And so it meant that I took more time to focus on him and his needs than on my own career. And, um, and that was an education in itself and also probably a podcast on its own about how we don't value folks that stay home with kiddos, right. In this country and how we don't value family. Anyway, like I said, another podcast. Yeah, we can, um, we can revisit that, that, that that's maybe two or three actually. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. And, um, and so eventually I got involved in the colleges as a teacher. And I taught, I was a children's teacher. They have, um, here we have a parent education program in our, in our local colleges. And, um, so I was, I started as a children's teacher and then became a parent educator and, uh, also just coordinated the parent education programs there. And it just, it really fed me in a way that, um, that I can't quite describe apparently, (laughs) (laughs) but I, um, so I started, I started doing that and that was very part-time work. And, um, meanwhile at this, let's see, at this point, my son was getting, um, the services that he needed. He was in grade school at this point and my marriage fell apart. And so I, um, I really had to dive into that job at that point in order to sort of find my own way in the world, not be reliant on someone else. And, um, and so 
let's see. I'm trying to track what the initial question was. Joel, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We we went down the rabbit hole, and I we love did. That. I love there that we that go. We got to no, so it was just about how you how, how you figured out what you were what you were going to do, and this has been. I mean, it's this is what you the way that you're you're going here is is so beautiful because um I get really this is this is my one of my bents is I get really sick and tired of coaches. Um, other people out there in the world of, you know, oh, just decide what you're going to do and you're going to go do it, you know, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and I remember, I think it was Rob Bell actually, who was talking about, there really are, he says, I've just, just, I I feel like in my learned experience, my lived experience, and this may not hold true for you. I think he said it that way. Like there are people who like from the time they were five, like they just knew, like they just, there, there was a point where they just figured it out. And it was like, it just came supernaturally to them. And they were like, boom, here it is. I'm, I'm just going. And they, and they don't understand why other people aren't that way. And then they're, then they're the people who it just seems like they sort of bump along and, and, and for some of them, it, it feels a little easier because they just keep meeting the right people, you know, mm-hmm. and they, the doors just open up for them. Um, neither one of those has been my experience. The, the, the experience that I've had is I keep running into walls, bloodying myself <laughs> in multiple times and then, and then going, Oh, maybe the way is clear over here. <laughs> right. Right. And also like, I wasn't paying en- enough attention to the FJ signs on the road. Right. right exactly. I mean, right. Like that's when I hit that wall, I'm like, Oh, Oh, that's what that symbol meant, you know, or that right. was the hint from the universe that was being dropped. All right, here we go again. Right? Yeah. Let's go a different route. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the, one of the cages that I continue to find myself in is that I, um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk to people, therapists or, or, or pastoral counselors or other people. And I'll say, you know, I just, I, I haven't really had many spiritual experiences in my life, even though that's been my profession for most of my life. Mm-hmm. I just haven't had many spiritual experiences. And then they'll start asking questions, right? And they'll go, well, why wasn't that a spiritual experience? Why wasn't this a spiritual experience? Why wasn't that? And I'm, cause it's not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, ha- I have this idea of what a spiritual experience mm-hmm. is supposed to be. And I still mm-hmm. haven't necessarily unlocked that cage very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's just interesting, right. To read the signs, what are the signs that are out there? And I, and, and sometimes I, I, I do feel like some people just blunder into them. I mean, they just blunder into these, these opportunities and they, the right person grabs them by the shoulders. This, they get a sage that really guides and directs them. Most of the sa- most of the sages in my life have been people that I've avoided that I got into contact with that taught me things not to do mm-hmm. those. And that mm-hmm. I oriented away from, but um, mm-hmm. so I think it's super interesting that then, so you sort of, you're, you're following this path and that the thread that I'm hearing is a lot of service, how, how to be of service to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is interesting too, because when I was going through my divorce, part of the settlement was you go see this career counselor and I'm not kidding you, this guy, you have, to, you should look him up. His name really literally is uh, David good enough. And he was like, he was a sage. Oh my gosh. This man has like gorgeous white hair, a big white handlebar mustache, and just 
sat with me and he was like, you know, I, I'm going to have you take the Myers-Briggs, Heather, but I am already going to tell you I know what you are. <laughs> and he was right. He was exactly right. And he was like, you have to, you have to be in service to others. Mm. And um, so all of this time, the thing that I had been working on was just solidified in that. And, um, and so the parent, the parent education piece fueled me because I'd been doing so much self-study on everything parenting, because I was just like, what is this thing parenting? Because it is a heck of a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And it's so fulfilling. And also I was, I mean, I, frankly, there were times I was just so depleted. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I was like, oh, but look at us. We've, we've like made it through where, you know, we're working as a team and we're not divorced. And this is about the time that people get divorced, you know, right around like the statistics show, like right around seven years old. And then boom, Boom. there it was. There it was. And I was like, no, (laughs) I was going to defy statistics. I was going to defy my own lived experience as a child of divorce. And, um, and so it was, it was tough and there was a long grief period. And also I knew I had to do my own work. I knew that I needed to understand more about communication. And, um, I took, we went through mediation and collaborative divorce process. And uh, I'm not going to lie, like it was, it was a really tough time, but talk about some sages in there to help us, including a, an amazing co-parent coach that really inspired me to explore nonviolent communication by, if you don't know, nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg. I also highly recommend that and use it in a lot of my coaching. Um, I went to, that's when I went and did my mediation training through King County Dispute Resolution Center. And, um, and I, and, and then I became a certified Gottman instructor because I also wanted to know how do people have children and allow their marriage to survive? Like I knew there had to be something there. Right. And I wanted to help people in that. And, uh, it helped me so much. I learned so much about my own communication style, where I had gone wrong. And, um, I started teaching that. And I also, rewrote the curriculum to make it appropriate for the LGBTQ community because it was very, um, unfortunately, the Gottmans are very supportive of the queer community, but they also just never got a lot of funding for that research. And so the curriculum is very heterocentric and um, I really wanted to see how we could do it differently to make sure that folks felt embraced and welcome. And, um, so did that. Yeah. Well, if you, well, if you were going to, if you were going to, if you were going to talk about nonviolent communication, what, what, what's, what do you, what did you find was the biggest (laughs) 
key well, for you? Like what, what, yeah. what, what, what did it, what did it let you out of that you were stuck in? What, how did it change that for you? That, and I'm laughing because Joel and I talked about this before our, before we got on to record, but it was asking for what you need. Mm. Like, I mean, there, and the fact that, that conflict is not a bad thing. Mm. I mean, so many of us are taught that, conflict avoidance is just the way to go, right? Like just right. skirt it. <laughs> and it doesn't Which actually... goes a lot along with passive aggressiveness, right? Right. Avoid the right. conflict, but then get your jabs in. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. But there's just like so much fear that gets caught up in that avoidance that people don't want to go there. And so um so I would say that's a big part of it is, you know, stating your feelings and your needs. And for a lot of people, I would say that first part, accessing your feelings, is one of the hardest things. And you can't really get to your needs until you know what you're feeling. And we're also, there's a cage. Hang on, hang on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Drop that key again. You can't really get to your needs until what? You identify your feelings. Oh, yeah. Oh. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Hmm. What I love about the um, nonviolent communication too, is that they actually have an entire feelings inventory list and you can find that for free online or you can get the book. I have the book in print. I have it on audible because Marshall Rosenberg actually read the book and he is no longer alive and he's like the biggest peacemaker in ever, I think. And so, and his voice is so soothing. So I recommend people have both just because you can integrate it a little bit more. I did. I will say that there was a point uh, during the pandemic where I reviewed it and my spouse and I were taking a walk and I said, oh my gosh, I totally forgot a huge step in the nonviolent communication. I have not been asking you if now is a good time first. Mm. And um, my spouse just laughed because it was like, ugh, like just like this little, little piece where it's like, you know, you may have just come from a rough day. Maybe you came home to a sink full of dirty dishes, which is my least favorite thing to come home to, especially if I have to then cook dinner. Um, You know, now is not going to be the time to say like, you know, when you said that thing to me, I didn't feel so good. <laughs> I need you to be more considerate. <laughs> like, well, guess guess whose bucket is already empty. Yeah. I don't need to talk about this right now. <laughs> Here, consider <laughs> this as the plate comes flying <laughs> from the sink at your head. Yeah. 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 Oh man, as that connects with me so much. Um, I mean, part of my part of my recent story is um you know, getting, getting a lot of personal clarity about some things, which meant that I needed to evaluate everything in my life. I mean, literally mm-hmm. I evaluated everything from what I do for a living. Um, and even more basic than that, one of the things that I, that I needed to reevaluate was my 30 year relationship with my, with my spouse. We, we, our first date was 30 years ago in February. Mm-hmm. And mm. we'll be married 30 years in October. And, um, and I think I've shared this, um, if not, here we go. Um, you know, I wasn't sure 
because I'd made some decisions about things. If she was along for the ride and in the next version, version 10.5 of Joel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I hadn't quite gotten to that to within attachment theory, like figuring out that it was okay to ask for what I wanted and needed, you know, like Mm -hmm. that I could just be honest about that in the right Mm -hmm. spaces. And so um, I probably didn't ask her is now a good time to talk Mm -hmm. about this. Mm -hmm. We we were talking Mm -hmm. about something. I was talking about a big revelation that I'd had. I'd had a therapy appointment the day before and it just some things that just opened up and I was sharing with her. And then I went down the rabbit hole with her about our relationship. And we spent the next Mm -hmm. week in a very difficult, but, but what ended up being amazing conversation where now we're, you know, I don't want to say make it, too big, but or more in love than we've ever been, or whatever any of that. But I I feel like I'm more connected with her and more solid with her than I've been in years. Mm. And a lot yeah. of that's me. Like I I figured out what I was feeling, and now I know what. And now most of the time I know what I need to ask for. And mm-hmm. and um and and but I love that. Yeah, <laughs> is now a good time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so simple, right? Yeah, right, right. Well, I yeah. mean, because so, so for us for a long time, I, you know, she's a she's a real fixer and and that and mm-hmm. she's and she's I mean, she's super good at it. And so I'd be talking about something I was working on, and I'd go, you know, and I knew what I needed to do. Right. I knew what I knew what the answer was. I just needed to process it with somebody because I couldn't process it with anybody else. And so I, I took me a long time to figure out, like, I just need to say, I just need to share this with you. I just need you to hear this and nod your head. I do not need, I do not need more answers because I'm full up with answers. I got answers or I've, or I think I've got answers. And so I at least had that tool for a while, (laughs) but now I feel, but this is good is, is now a good time. So, so now, so then fast forward to the Gottman thing Mm -hmm. um, and learning from the Gottmans who, who their work is, is amazing and Mm -hmm. has definitely changed relationships. Um, you know, what, what, what things, what keys have you picked up from that, that seem to just pop up, pop up, pop up for you personally, but also then in the work that you're doing with couples or with families? Uh, Well, one of the biggest ones was sitting there in the training. Um, They were talking about, they, they described this four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? So these four things will lead to the end of your marriage, essentially. And they are, uh, conflict styles that without identifying what they are and working to remedy them, they tend to lead to dissatisfaction in marriage or mm-hmm. divorce. And they are defensiveness, super common, right? Right. You'll get defensive. Um, and now I'm going to, now, of course, I'm going to struggle with identifying them all. Contempt. Right. Contempt is the absolute worst. So contempt is like rolling the eyes, sarcastic comments, like, well, of course you're always late, you know, uh, being snobbish about things, um, defensiveness, contempt, stonewalling. And when they said stonewalling, I realized I was a total stonewaller. Mm. And that is, when you completely shut down. And that's often a learned behavior. It often comes from um, 
generational trauma, right? Or learned experience in your own, in your own childhood. Um, it, it looks like you are completely disconnected. Like we might be having a heated discussion and I might start looking away. I might fold my arms. I might, it might look to you like I've just completely checked out, right? That I'm not engaged anymore. But physiologically for me, I'm, my body is on fight, flight, or freeze, right? Or feign. Some people say feign or faint. Mm. And uh, your brain is offline. So your frontal lobe is raised. Your body is flooded with chemicals and you can't even think. Maybe you might have ringing in your ears. It's a real like mm. trauma response, right? And so uh, going into that stonewalling place, really the only remedy is to take a break. And often people that are uh, in relationship that our stonewallers are in relationship with somebody that is a pursuer. And so they might be the fix it people. And they're going to be like, wait, where are you? Where'd you go, Joel? Where are you? You know, low, let's get back to this. And there's absolutely no way a stonewaller can get back online to have the appropriate conversation until their, until their physiological self has calmed down and soothed. And so what I coach couples on that are in that state is you got to take a minimum 20 minute break and here are some self-soothing techniques to do to get yourself back online before you can go back to the, to the discussion. Mm. Oh my gosh. I'm forgetting the fourth one. Defensiveness. Defensiveness. Stonewalling. Stonewalling. Gosh. I'm going to look it up because I, yeah, literally we can can do these things. This is, this (laughs) this is live people. This is why you, you you don't get me editing very much because I I love, uh, um, I love this, that we're, (laughs) we're figuring this out. Yeah. So realizing that that was something that I did and how, how painful it was for the people that were in my life that criticism experience that criticism. There we go. Criticism is the one where you're uh, like, Joel, you never take me out for a date anymore. Joel, you always leave your dirty socks by the front door, right? It's just that you always, you never, it's all about the singular person And so really coming to this very peaceful place of just acknowledging everybody has a role in the relationship, right? Everybody has some responsibility and owning that responsibility is really, really important. And again, (laughs) stating your needs, right? Yeah. Like what is, what is your spouse trying to say when they say you always leave your socks by the front door? Do they need to have tidiness when they walk in the front door, right? Do they need the kitchen to be clean <laughs> before it before took they us, cook, right? It took us a few years, but we're there. We finally got to the place where it's like, okay, if dinner's yeah. going to happen and Heather's going to cook it, then the kitchen must be at least a little bit orderly before she gets started or yeah. she'll be cranky when I get home. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's interesting when you were talking about stonewalling, um, is that 
to go back to metaphors of keys and cages is that stonewalling for the person who is, uh, who is stonewalling, they're locked in a cage. Like their, their brain just went, the garage door just went down and that it is locked, baby. You are not getting in here because I can't function Mm -hmm. Um, because everything is just on high alert and the bells and whistles are going off and the sirens and the blah, 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 blah. blah, And my body's on shutdown. That is, that's fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to think, to think about, um, that in terms of keys and cages and then what unlocks that is some time and some methods Mm -hmm. for that person to be able to, to, to open open back up. Well, what are some keys maybe that you picked up along the way in just in your life that, that you, you literally had to go through a process of dropping. I mean, not for somebody else, like getting rid of that. This key does not work for me anymore. I used to, I did this thing or, or this, this opened me up at one time, but now it actually isn't useful anymore. Doing things for others, being, Mm. you know, being the fixer, right? Like always letting other people's needs come first before mine. And uh, that's one I, I would say I keep coming back to because it's just like as the adult child of an alcoholic, as um, somebody that just kind of grew up in that, you know, uh, I know there's better terms than this, but codependent family dynamic, it's a learned behavior. Like my neurons are just routed that way. And I can easily do it, pick up the pieces. I can, I can clean up all the dishes and from breakfast and make dinner and wake up in the morning and make breakfast and make lunch and make dinner and, you know, uh, make sure the laundry's done. And so getting myself out of that, right. Is, uh, is the, the key that I have to keep Mm. returning to. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause, cause at one time that fixed things doing all that stuff, picking up, picking up all the things, making sure everything happened, made everything better. But at the expense of my own creativity, my own spiritual awareness, my own ability to just have presence or reset. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the things you and I talked about attachment theory a little bit before we got on and we've sort of mentioned it a little bit here because it is, it is, it's just part of the zeitgeist these days, attachment theory and trauma and and all big T and little T trauma and however Mm -hmm. we talk about all that. But Mm -hmm. um, one of the, one of the things, and I think I've said it on this podcast before, one of the things that really released me to asked for what I want and need. And, and all of that was um, because I've worked in the addiction world a lot throughout my life, um, either, either just hosting space for people or being part of groups and and helping them do what they do and whatever. Um, I've heard a lot about codependence and how bad it is and it's horrible and you've got to break the cycle and that, you know, all those kinds of things that really do release people. Right. They mm-hmm. really do. Mm-hmm. But in the, in, in the book attached, um, which is one of the seminal works, and it's mostly about monogamous heterosexual relationships and attachment theory, but that's, that's maybe it's limitation. But um, the thing that it, that it, that they wrote about in there was we've made too much of codependence. Mm-hmm. 
because we've put away dependence. Mm-hmm. We've tried to, we've tried to almost say, and it's, I think this is really a Western thing and maybe almost an American thing. Mm-hmm. You got to be on your own. Nobody, you shouldn't, you got to be your own woman, your own man, whatever you are. And, and nobody, you know, you got to fulfill your own needs and you got to do this. You got to do that. And you shouldn't have any, and it, because if you're, because if, if you need, if you have needs, you're needy. And if mm-hmm. you're needy, you're probably high maintenance. And if mm. you're high maintenance, you're bad. Amen. I mean, it's just yeah. this whole yeah. thing. Right. And so, so for me, for me, I think as a, especially as a male, I was like, well, I have these needs. Like I, I want certain kinds of attention from my partner or from, from friends. Like I want to have more regular contact with, with, with them than maybe what they need or what they want. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was finally, when I read that, I was like, it's okay. Dependence is how we're made. Mm-hmm. We're made yes. to be dependent exactly. on each other appropriately, of course. I mean, and so, Absolutely. so, you know, so you can ask for what you want and need anyway, that, that was a, that was a big one, like for me mm-hmm. too, to be able to go, Oh, once I figure out what I'm feeling, Mm-hmm. And I can ask what I, you know, for what exactly. I need. Things are better. Things are different. Oh, I've, so sorry, better. I just the the neurons are are continuing to fire on that, and I love that, and, and especially the the four horsemen. I've I've read that before, and it, I don't for whatever reason you talking about it just really really connected me with that even more so. So mm-hmm. thank you for mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I love I love talking about that. Yeah, and Julie Gottman says like we're all we all uh, we all need things from others. We are social beings, yeah. right? And yeah. we have to be able to ask for what we need, what we need. It doesn't make us too needy. And actually in back to how it's connected to service is when you say to your wife or when when you're when you know that your wife needs um I don't know, her coffee with cream and sugar in the morning. And you know exactly how she likes it and you bring it to her, even though you would really rather she brought you a cup of black coffee first, right? But you doing that actually fills your own bucket, right? It, it, and it makes you, um, you're back in the area of service. It doubles how you feel about yourself. It doubles how your wife feels in the day. So you also benefit from yeah. serving others. Yeah. So, so Heather, how did you know how I take my coffee? <laughs> it was a total you, instinct. How did, how did you? Total instinct. I was like, oh no, you know what? That's not fair because I did connect with you on Instagram and I did see a cup of black coffee. Oh, so, okay. okay. So that's not I'm like, completely I'm true. Like, I'm like, not everybody knows I'm a narcissist right away. <laughs> Because, you know, narcissists <laughs> drink black coffee, apparently. So that's, oh, is that right? Yeah, no, it was no. one of the things I always joke about. The, I'll be like, the, how do you take your coffee? I'm like, narcissist. <laughs> black, <laughs> I love it. You know, I love it. So, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Well, because it's so funny because one of the things that I love to do is I love to make the coffee in the morning and I love to mm-hmm. take it to my wife. Yeah. That's yeah. one of the things. And it's just, uh, well you know, I'm the coffee fairy. I mean, that's what yeah. I do is I yeah. make the coffee and it just magically appears. And I love yeah. that. And I, and I actually don't like it when she has to get up and make it for herself. If I sleep in a little bit or something. Mm. So it's, that's a funny thing. It's funny that you picked that particular that metaphor. Is, that is, um, interesting. that is, that's very, very interesting. Well, mm. so, so who do you, who do you feel like you're becoming now? In terms of all the, all of your life experience, all the keys that have been dropped for you, all the cages you've been let out of, maybe even the cages you're in now and the things you're working on, but who are you mm-hmm. becoming right now? Um, the word creative comes up for me 
um, the word curious, which I know Dana dropped in the last podcast. And I (laughs) was like, that is like my favorite word in the entire world. I want to, I want a mug that says curious on it just, or, you know, got curiosity. Cause I feel like if we all just get a little more curious, we won't be so judgmental and we will help others and we'll help ourselves ultimately. Um, a facilitator and a coach and an educator holding space for people to get to where they need to go to break through those barriers, those limited beliefs that hold them back, right? That keep them on the train of, well, my parents did it this way. So this is how I'm going to do it for my kid, right? I'm being reactive in this moment because I don't know where else to go and helping them reroute their neurons so that they can actually try it differently. So we can build more socially aware, connected kiddos in this world that will bring more peace to the Mm. world. Mm. I just feel like working with families, whether they're, you know, married, whether they're going through separation, when they're going through divorce, you know, divorce, like when I was a kid was the D word, right? Like, oh, it's like cancer and divorce. You don't want to say them out loud. And um, now I feel like we can finally get to a place where we don't have to be like, you know, the people in the locker room that say like, oh, you're going through divorce. I've got the best bulldog lawyer for you. Let's go. You know, it doesn't have to be so filled with litigation and animosity and fire and heat. And um, we can still come to the table for our kids and be, I mean, because parenting is a lifelong relationship, that co-parenting across, even when you're living in two homes, you don't have to be the Gwyneth Paltrow and whoever she was married to there. They like did the conscious uncoupling. Like it doesn't have to be that extreme you do not have to have, you know, happy hour with your ex, but you can be a peaceful co-parent for the children. And the reason why is so that we can have more happy, healthy, resilient people walking through the world. Mm. Mm. That's who I'm becoming. Yeah. I love how that, that just unlocked that for you mm-hmm. to, to roll all that out. That was great. So what do you, what, what, what's the most important key in your life right now? Presence, especially, I think, you know, when, when I was going through my divorce, I was like, I had this epiphany where I was like, oh my God, I'm only going to have my kid for half of his life. And I better like hunker down here and get present And it's so easy to become overwhelmed in this world and, you know, pick up our phone and scroll or um, many of the other addictions. Uh, One of my former addictions was, is it 4.30-ish? Can I have a glass of wine yet? Mm. You know, and I had had to stop uh, for lots of reasons. But um, letting go of those, all of those addictions that take us out of being present for ourselves, for our children, 
for our significant others, um, again, just does not make us the best people in the world to be of service, to um, be playful, right? To um, show up for others. And so uh, really the power of presence is something I come back to again and again. And I have this, I actually have this image of my, uh, my chosen family, my best friend's mother. She was a writer and um, my mother was like, very like the house is always clean. You dust every Saturday, you literally move all the knickknacks and dust, you know, everything has its place in order. And at uh, Molly's house, it was just a little more chaotic, right? Her mom was definitely okay with the dishes being piled up before she started dinner, for instance. (laughs) And and I remember she would make us like a cup of tea after school. And there was this one moment where it was like the kitchen was a mess. And the three of us just sat on the floor of the kitchen and we just talked. And I returned to that again and again as sort of this beautiful moment of just being fully present for your kids and thinking about not like Evan, my son would come up to me and be like, Hey mom. And I'm like, "Mm -hmm. no, yeah, no, I'm listening. You know, here I am on my phone. I'm just going to be scrolling. I can listen and scroll at the same time. Isn't that neat? Like who wants that? Right. And because what happens is so magical when we can do that, when we can fully show up for people And especially for our kids, especially if they're like teenagers, right? Their brains are going through so much development and change and their bodies and their social selves. And so reminding myself again and again to show up and not react, not respond in the moment, right? To really ask those open-ended questions so that he can be the best version of himself too. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, by doing that too, by doing that, I feel like what's biggest gift of parenting too, is that when we're parenting, we are actually reparenting ourselves. It's such a beautiful side effect that I think we don't think about or talk about enough in our society, but how healing that can be. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's really good. And that's a, another whole podcast as well, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so if you could, if you could, if, you know, for the world, if you could drop a key right now for, 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 you know, what key would you drop for people? Hmm. Probably, probably just that. Because if I think about presence as it relates to um, getting curious and having healthy communication, I feel like it can be applied anywhere. It can be applied to team building, right? When you're at work, maybe in your church, if you belong to another community, um, it can be applied to how, again, how we parent. And there are a lot of people that are living with two home families. And and that is, that is my main goal right now, is really 
bringing people together that maybe had the most tumultuous divorce and letting them sit together in the same room and letting them work through their pain and get to what the most important thing is. And for me, it's always like, okay, I'm going to be the voice of your six-year-old. I'm going to be the voice of your 15-year-old. And we're going to get to what, what is it going to look like when they are an adult and you are sharing space at their graduation, at their wedding, right? Are they going to feel torn? Are they going to feel like they have to be on two sides of the room because the story has been that you two can't get along? Or are we going to get to a place where we can work through, work through that pain and difficulty and conflict? And again, conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. Conflict is real. It exists in our world. How can we do it peacefully? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, I, I, now I always say this, but it's always true. I can't wait to go back and listen to this. Um, Cause as you know, I'll go back and listen and I'll pick up something that probably maybe something that I didn't even pick up the first time and I'll mm-hmm. do a deeper dive on it. Um, so if you're interested in connecting with Heather, um, she is, imagine this, she's online. Um, <laughs> Heather Harmon coaching. H-E-A-T-H-E-R-H-A-R-M-A-N coaching.com. She's um, on Instagram at Harmon Coaching. And she is on Facebook as Heather Co-Parent Coach. So you can find her um, on, on in those places. You can, of course, always find me. Um, uh, you can email me at joel at joelmorgan.com. Joelmorgan.com is the website. Um, I'm at Joel Morgan CC on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm Joel Robert Morgan on LinkedIn, if you want to connect there as well. And uh, Heather, I'm so uh, grateful for you being my volume 19 uh, Dropping Keys podcast co-conspirator. This has been a wild and wonderful ride and conversation. I'm so appreciative and grateful. Oh, me too. I'm super grateful. I've loved our time together. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Awesome. And so everybody, I'm going to leave you with what I always leave you with. May the sage drop the key to unlock the cage in which you find yourself. Until next time.